I'm Matt Booker. I'm Dave Laird. And I'm Deb Allen Unferth. And to quote a character from Deb's novel Vacation, I despise a querying man. Well, tonight, Deb, you get two of them in Matt and I here on Concavity Show. Great. That sounds good to me. <laughs> hey, right on. Deb, welcome to the show. It's so great to have you. It's so good to be here. Uh, we've been talking for half an hour already um, and covered so many great things. Unfortunately, they're lost in the ether, but we'll get we'll try and get some of them back here. Um, so for folks who are unfamiliar with Deb Olin Unferth, which your name has come up a few times on our show, Deb, uh, Jessica Anthony had some wonderful things to say about your writing, and that's sort of what drew me in like oh I gotta read Barn 8 now and Vacation turns out I'd read your book Minor Robberies 13 14 years ago something like that um, that little three sleeve collection uh, hardcover collection from Dave Eggers on McSweeney's um, and then we had Brandon Hobson on recently and you guys are pals and so your name just kind of kept coming up and we were like okay let's see if we can get Deb on the show and we've both been reading and enjoying your work immensely so here we are it's great to have you. It's great to be here. I was so excited to see um, Brandon's name and Jessica's name, and I went and immediately listened to the episodes. Awesome. And they're just they're, it was it was so great to hear their voices. Yeah, so we'll get into how you guys know each other shortly, but I'll give a little bit of bio background for our audience for some context, and then we'll then we'll dive into that. So Deb, your birthday is November nineteenth, um, <laughs> same as mine. Dave. So how is that a twins. bio? That's not the bio, Dave. That's just coincidence. Well, on her Wikipedia is the first thing, born November 19th, 19th. Yeah. So I was like, great, we have the same birthday. Well, happy cool. birthday to um, both of you. Yeah, thank you. Mm-hmm, By thank the time you. this comes, maybe I'll release this on our birthday, Deb. That'll be like <laughs> a fun little present. That would be great. <laughs> so if it's not clear already, Deb is an American short story writer, novelist, and a memoirist. Um, I mentioned Minor Robberies, which was 2007. Uh, Vacation was your novel with McSweeney's in 2008. Um, Jacob McGraw Mickelson, who happens to be my favorite artist on the planet, did the cover for that uh, trilogy bookcase. And he did the cover for Jessica's The Convalescent and the cover for Adam Levin's The Instructions and lots of other great stuff. Mm. Um, You also have a memoir called Revolution, The Year I Fell in Love and Went to Join the War. And most recently, Barn 8, your novel from last year in 2020. Uh, which is what we'll spend a lot of our time tonight talking about. You have appeared in, like, I can't believe how many great publications you're in, Deb. You're in Harper's, New York Times, Paris Review, Granta, McSweeney's, Believer, Esquire, Boston Noon. Review, Noon. Noon. Um, yeah, we talked about Noon with Brandon as well. Uh, and you've won all kinds of awards, like the Pushcart Prize twice. Um, you're a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award for your memoir. Uh, and you're also an associate professor in creative writing at the University of Texas at Austin. So you and Matt have all kinds of mutual friends we were just talking about. Um, and you teach there for the Missioner Center and the New Writers Project. And then I'd lo- we're going to love to follow up uh, on this with you a bit later is your what you founded, the Penn City Writers, which is a two-year creative writing program at Maximum Security Prison there in Southern Texas. And you won a big award for that in 2017 as well, um, Texas Governor's Criminal Justice Service Award. 
So there's a whole mouthful of bio on who Deb Olin Unforth is and uh, her worthiness of being on, on the show. <laughs> Thank you for joining us today. No, it's really a pleasure, really an honor yeah, to is. have you um, as part of our show. We're big admirers of your work. Um, all all totally. of these books he's mentioned are, are just fantastic. And it's really just, just great to be in conversation with you. Totally. Thank you so much. It's so great to be here. I want to start out with a little bit of your... Um, career trajectory because you were originally story writer and you know this is a common thing with mfa programs where you get people who they apply on a story they get in they write more stories right and then they're publishing stories and then um i'm thinking of a lot of writers who have been in this position is like after you publish like one book of stories they're like when are you going to do a novel and so i want to ask you about First of all, just the novel. Did you always want to write a novel? Did you always just want to write a great sentence? What did what made you want to be a writer and really write stories? Um, you know, back when I started writing, um, was a long time ago. I was twenty five. Um, I mean, stories just had a different place in our culture than they do now. Um, everybody, everybody read books all the time. Everyone was reading. You couldn't go to a party and not be in a conversation with people about the books they were reading and be standing by their bookshelf looking at their books and that's like business people like people from all walks of life it was not just you know just like the college students it was you know it was just a very it was just a very important part of the culture and I really wanted to take part in this conversation that was happening about that was taking place on the page. And um, so that was kind of why I started writing. Um, I mean, I guess that really what happened was that I met a guy in a bar and he was really cute. And um, he said he was a writer and he said, what are you? And I said, I'm a writer too. So then I had to like start writing and that's how I started writing. And then, you know, we were together for years and we just wrote and wrote and wrote and it was really great. Um, and so, and then like, I wound up going to grad school. And so that's really how, how I got started. But as I wrote, I mean, I was already just kind of interested. I mean, I was already, I studied philosophy. Oh yeah. Um, and you traveled a lot too. I mean, it seems like that informed a lot of your writing too, right? Like seeing the world. I traveled. Yeah, yeah I traveled quite a bit. You know, my grandmother uh, lived in Mexico when I was a kid, and I would go um, and stay with her for long periods and go to school. I went to school part of the time with her there, and and my family would take us. Yeah, we we did. We traveled quite a bit. Well, yeah. one of our favorite writers, Bologna, he has this line like reading and traveling are the same thing, one and the same. <laughs> um, and and I, I'm a big believer in that, that, you know, seeing the world or being curious about the world um, often translates well to people who are able to describe the world or to imagine another world and all of the it's, it's hard mm-hmm. to do if you just are a hermit, you know. Mm, that's so interesting. Yeah. I I do think that there is something about describing the world that makes you a person. I've kind of always felt that way, that whenever I'm feeling ungrounded or whenever I'm feeling like I just don't really know who I am anymore, I just start describing. I Usually I'll do something like, 
I just give myself the assignment that every day I'm just going to describe this little piece of wood or this little corner of the concrete or something like that. And I just sit and I write several pages just describing that little thing. Because I feel like you can, if you can describe that, then, and if you can just keep, just focus on that one thing and just describe that one thing, then it's like you are, are like finding your voice and, and you're reaching into your mind and, you know, you're just, you're changing and growing just even just by sitting there and describing that. See, you could do, write a book of exercises that's just describe the table, describe the wall. <laughs> describe. I, I actually think that's really hard to do. And like you say, that gets you, your mind in the right place to, you know, even just keeping words flowing, I think is important. Um, but I want to ask you again about this this tension between the story and the novel because, uh, you know, people, like you said, in the spare time, reading is a form of entertainment. It's a lot of stories published in The New Yorker. People would read for entertainment and reading novels. You know, you can't sit down and read in one sitting, most novels. Um, so how did you start writing, like, a, a story and say, I'm a story writer? Well, I mean, once I just wrote the first one to impress the guy, I just decided I was a story writer. Oh. And then it's I just, just like wrote... self-actualization. That's all it takes. Yeah. I mean, I basically in those early years, I mean, I just wrote a story every day. And then, um, yeah. And then just but I, I kind of still do that. I still sort of write a story a lot of days, oh. not every day, but. I write a story most days. And we should say Mitre Robberies, this this slim little book, right? It has 100, 145 pages and it's like, how many stories in that book? 60. I don't know, like, like 30, 30 about? Maybe like 30 something. Right. Yeah, 30, 40. Okay, another book you guys don't seem to have is um, Wait Till You See Me Dance, That's which 20... I published a couple of years ago. Oh, cool. That is also full of short stories and it's got little it's got also a lot of really tiny shorts in there and so when you're writing those short stories are there are there characters are there scenarios that you want to come back to and write in depth more now okay so that has never happened it's usually like when i write Mm -hmm. a short short it's like i hear the whole thing in my head and it's like a sound or something that gets stuck in my head as i as I just look at something and then, or as I experience something and it arrives whole and then I just kind of write it down really fast and then I revise it for like a year and it doesn't shrink or grow. It stays about the same number of words and I just kind of change the words around. But if I'm going to write a novel, that's a whole different thing. That's like, that's like, I think, I think when I think about a novel, it's it's like I have I want to I, I something happens like I see something, I see a a or or I get like a spark in my brain, and suddenly a whole novel jumps into my head, but that's going to take years to write, mm-hmm. and um and I think that what happens is it's like that one little spark. Or and I call it an, an initia. I think of it as an initia, is how I always refer to it. It connects to so many different parts of my brain 
that refer to so many different levels of experience and of history and of, you know, uh, political concerns. And it just, it refers to so many different things at once that in order to unpack that, you have to, you just, you need a lot of room. So that's how a novel comes to be. And I've read with Barn 8, right, you said in some other interview that, you know, what came to you first is this image of the birds being liberated, right? So that that came to you before the characters, is that right? Oh, yeah. The, yeah. It was the birds, yeah. So it's like there's like kind of a writing prompt image vision, and then that from that you start to extra- extrapolate a world and characters, and what's the story behind that explosion of birds? Yeah, because like I just feel like the brain is so complicated that in any one complicated thought, there's just so much to unpack. Mm-hmm. And so so it's it's like yeah, so like I had this image of birds that were lifting out of a barn. Like they were like flying out of a barn. They were chickens, so they don't really chickens don't really fly, but these these <laughs> chickens were flying. So they were just flying out of the barn. And, you know, I mean, I'm vegan. I hadn't been vegan for that. I'd only been vegan for a few years, I think, at that point. And I, I mean, I just knew, I, I just knew that it, it had, that there were a lot of layers there and I really wanted to unpack them. And then like, you know, some, I mean, I get those kinds of flashes all the time. We all do. And then the question is like, which are the ones that you want to grab and hold on to and nurture and grow and and we should you know summarize a bit for people who have not uh, read the book yet um, that this is a book about chickens and it's really a a plot that is revolves around i wouldn't say stealing liberating uh a mega heist a million or close to a million chickens it ends up being about nine hundred thousand, right um and i want to ask you about that too of why not? It's fiction, right? Not just make it a clean million or 10 million or 100 million. Or, uh, I guess it's just practically it's difficult to. I can answer all okay, your okay. This is great. This is great. But so there, there are a host of different characters here. The book starts out with a, uh, a girl named Janie and we meet her friend. She's an auditor. She becomes an auditor. I'm, I'm really just skipping quickly here for people who have not read the book, but... Um, we meet another, um, I believe Cleveland is an auditor, not an investigator, right? Um, she's a, yeah, she's an, she's like a, she's an auditor. Yeah. There you go. Auditor. Um, and they, they are the one, they are the ones who begin this plot to liberate a million chickens. Um, (laughs) I'm really short selling the summary. I should have written this out up before. I'm sorry. Um, Dave, why don't you uh, rescue well, me from this? We, we try to be as spoiler-free as possible, but like that's the seed of the idea of the novel, right? Is you have these two, two people who are like, you know, this is kind of a grotesque uh, factory farming industry. They're, this animal deserves greater dignity than this. Um, and you go into some really amazing passages about the intelligence of chickens and uh, sort of the biological history of chickens. And at one point you call the chicken T-Rex's pretty little niece, which I love that line. And um, so it begins a plot that starts to involve myriad other characters 
uh, and a bunch of quirky characters into into do, pulling off this heist. And so we don't want to say too too much more than that, uh, so as to spoil some of the some of the plot points. But uh, that's sort of the the grand picture, I guess. Is that fair fair, Deb? Yeah, it's like it's like a heist. It's like these two uh, auditors for for the U.S. egg industry. They go rogue, yeah. and they <laughs> decide that they're going to steal an entire farm's worth of chickens. Yeah, and they have to in one night, all in one night. And yeah. in order to do that, they have to assemble a team of people who are going to help them. And everyone has kind of like different motivations for participating. And as the team grows, the team kind of takes over. And then um, Cleveland and Janie, the original two auditors, are, um, you know, kind of just swept up with the rest of them. Yeah, it kind of takes on like a life of its own that they maybe haven't planned for, I guess, in some ways. Mm -hmm. And I I will say as a reader, my... um impression of a industrial chicken farm is informed partly by what i've seen on tv or in movies right uh, i have not been on to an industrial chicken farm i've never seen a million Neither chickens in, in yeah. one or however many fit into one of those giant barns um at full capacity i've never heard it smelt it um, but there's a brief <laughs> glimpse of this in the movie napoleon dynamite there is a chicken scene in that movie where he goes and has oh, yeah, to I work. And he's like, I don't remember. He's like, do the chickens have large talons? <laughs> but he he goes into a chicken um, farm, and the the sound is just deafening, and it just looks absolutely like miserable work for these kids who are doing it. Um, also, I thought in a couple of places of the movie Fantastic Mr. Fox, which has a chicken oh, yeah. stealing scene, um, although these are wild animals who are uh, looking to eat the chickens rather than li- they're liberating them, but to in order to eat them. Um, <laughs> and so I think, you know, my, my question for you is like, what what um, what drew you to chickens to write a whole book about chickens, but also you know, what you knew about chickens versus what you learned about chickens, I guess. So, I mean, once the image was in my head, then, I mean, okay, I didn't know anything about chickens. Like really nothing. Hadn't. Okay, nothing. so a lot of research. Went no backyard chickens. I, you didn't have backyard yeah. chickens. No. Mm-mm. I'd never befriended a chicken. Like, I didn't know anything, <sighs> anything, anything about chickens. Um, and, but I was a vegan. And, um you know, for for animal rights reasons. And so I cared. And it could have been pigs, it could have been turkeys, um, but I just fixated on chickens, um, mostly because of the image. But then it just kept making sense. The more I yeah. thought about it, the more, like just the better it seemed to me that it had to be chickens, like it had to be chickens. Like, for example, <laughs> Um, you know, chickens, I mean, I, I have like serious political reasons, I have existential reasons, sure. I have, reasons of humor i've got like so many reasons but i mean just to go through them i mean politically i mean chickens are the worst treated of all of the animals and the egg laying hens are the worst of all of the chickens that are um that we breed so that was one reason and then another reason was that chickens are really they're just they're just very interesting like they're they are they don't fly but they have like huge wings so there's just something strange about that. 
and um, they there aren't a lot of wild chickens like the the chick chickens that most chickens are you domesticated. Know, are domesticated. There yeah. are some wild chickens, you know, like in Hawaii and, and places like that. But um, so we have just so many of these animals, and they're all domesticated, and they don't. They're hardly any of them are even like you know have guardians or anything they're just locked in these cages so that's really strange so like what's their personhood at this point if they're breeded in that way like i don't know what their personhood mm. is and then they are um they're also um they're just like they're funny just you say chicken and <laughs> <Sure>. people laugh <laughs> um and they're also really humble like Nobody wants to read a book about chickens. You know, people might want to read a book about horses or about mm. elephants or about, you know, dogs. Something with grandeur, yeah. Yeah. Gravitas, like, yeah. Yeah, even monkeys are apes, you know. But nobody, nobody wants to read a book about chickens. And <laughs> we did. So, <laughs> Turns out we, we do, yeah. <laughs> and loved it, so. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So well done. I, you sold uh, us on the chicken. Well, that was my challenge. I'm like, God mm. damn it, they will love chickens when I'm through. <laughs> well, you don't really try to, to anthropomorphize them. You don't try to say right from the point of view of a chicken, like a whole book that's just like, oh, these are all the different quirky chickens and give them personalities. There is one particular chicken that you do that to, but not like, you I'm know, what was, your, what was your thought process there of like trying to get in the mind of a chicken or convince a sort of non-vegan audience to empathize with individual chickens out of, you know, a million. I mean, so yeah, that was a problem. There was, there was this one moment where there was a woman, um, I, after AWP at some point, you know, like you're in the airport and there's all these, um, other writers. And I ended up sitting next to this woman on the plane who was, she was like some like famous newscaster, you know, and I was telling her about this book and she was like, yeah, but why chickens? And I was like, well, and she said, why don't you do turkeys? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so for a while I was like, oh my God, maybe I should do turkeys. And then I was like, God damn it. No, it's going to be chickens. And so, and I was like, and even that woman will love these chickens. So. I, so I mean, it was a I challenge really to convert her, basically. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but everyone, like everyone mm. I talked to, was like, "Why don't you do whales?" So um, or dolphins. dolphins. You cover yeah. dolphins a bit in vacation, or one specific dolphin, or with the dolphin untrainer. Exactly. Yeah, there is. Like, yeah, you you uh, you remember that from the book. So I, but I really, really, it was like once you start looking into the history of chickens, they become really complicated. They have a huge amount of personality. They have, you know, like domestic arrangements. They've got, you know, friends. They have, um, you know, they just, they're very, they have, they, they talk a lot. They have conversations. I mean, they're as smart as any bird. They're really they can perform not dumb. like like um, simple mathematic equations and things like that as well. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, there's they some play tic tac toe in Las Vegas too. Yeah. Oh um, yeah, you <laughs> can play tic tac toe versus chicken. Put money in there and very. Oh really? I mean, ninety percent of tic tac toe games end in a draw. Um, but <laughs> you know, there. Uh, I was listening to this podcast with um, David Chang, who's a chef, you know, in New York interesting guy maybe it was a tv show he did and he was talking about how every culture koreans deep south they do fried chicken um there's some kind of like you know subcontinent of india they have a fried chicken dish africa 
all these different countries in Africa do fried chicken in a different way. And his sort of layman's argument was like primitive people looked around and said like this animal walking on the ground because it couldn't fly looked like easier food. Um, you know, whereas like to go and kill a woolly mammoth, like it's going to take two or three of us. We're going to have to craft some weapons. It might not taste that good. And it's like, it could kill us. Whereas like a chicken, it's not going to kill you. I mean, maybe it'll peck you to death. I've never heard of a human being being killed by a chicken, but, um, you know, it has a lot of things like against it because it's so defenseless, um, in the wild. Like it had no chance in the wild. Um, yeah, but you know, they had really complicated civilizations long before we were around, hmm. um, in the jungles and, um, and I mean like 50 million years ago, right. the earliest chickens, and they had really, they had, they had, you know, generational systems and partnerships and... Well, you still see this with geese and birds that can fly long distances and escape mankind altogether, you know, especially down in the Antarctic, right? Like they have complex civilizations there, massive breeding populations, mm-hmm. um, and because they have no predators, right? So that's something I wanted to ask you about is this book, you know, we, when you're teaching literature to ninth graders, you know, they, they learn man versus nature, man versus man, man versus, <laughs> you know, man versus himself in a way in this book, you know, the man is, it's the evil people, right? Like the people are the bad guys. Um, and you know, is that, uh, how you see humans as, on the same level as animals or people that are, should be, you know, like a noble class of people who are smarter than most animals and know then not to go and, you know, create these huge factory farms. Um, it's not really a question, but I was trying to make it. Well, (laughs) (laughs) no, I have things to say about that. No, I, I, I do think that the thing about the thing that I started thinking about when I was looking so hard into chickens, and I mean, I did a huge amount of research. I mean, you know, years yeah, worth of really, research. That really I like, comes through. I mean, I embedded. I was. I did undercover stuff. I mean, I visited so many farms. I did all kinds of stuff, and um, I got to know under. I got to know undercover investigators extremely well. Hmm. Um, and the one thing that. Kept, I kept coming back to was how similar chickens are really to us in so many ways, like mm. that we also once, you know, were nomadic and, um, you know, living in, in different, all different kinds of strange climates exposed to the elements and that we also, um, you know, that we, in, in many ways, we're pretty vulnerable, even though we learned to use our hands and stuff. And now the way that we live is so different from that like we are so unfree compared to how we were then not that you know not that necessarily we would want to go back to that but just <laughs> if you compare i mean how chickens live in these little tiny cages and like they have like pieces of their of their face like cut off and stuff in order to not peck each other to death and i mean if you think mm-hmm. about how we live you know crammed into our our small spaces and we put these you know uncomfortable shoes on our feet all day and we like walk from one box to another <laughs> to like do our our you know our work and then walk back to our our little box or we walk to a different box to get a few boxes to take home with us 
And I mean, it's just like, and we wear like masks on our faces or, you know, I mean, it's like, there's, you know, we are, we have, we have created our own prison. Like this is a barn. We live in a barn. The United States is a barn. I mean, the whole world is just this giant barn and we are burning it down. And that really struck me the more that I was researching chickens. And so it's Mm -hmm. like, you know, saving the chickens, it's not just saving the chickens. It's like, you know, like, can we even just do that one thing? Like, just stop burning our barn down? No. Well, and you really put to rest Mm -hmm. a lot of the mythology around the idea of like free range chicken. Um, like that sort of a marketing term come up by these factory farms to make people think that these chickens are free. Like it's got the word free in it, right? Uh, It's like free range. They're free. They're ranging around. Like that sounds great. Um, But the, the, the reality of that is they're still on these factory farms. Like even if it's free range, they're just still in a box and they're, you know, live in darkness and there's huge fans. Um, and, you know, I wanted to ask you, say so you did all this. And the shit. The sh- just pit, right? The shit pit. Uh, oh, my pit. God. You have no idea. <laughs> it's, oh, my God. Do you God. want to describe for people listening at home of how this works? So there's a grate, right? Like all the shit just goes straight down. You desc- you've seen it. You tell us. Well, I mean, there's just there's different kinds of of um, barns. And yeah, but there's one of them. Um, like a pit there's a pit a pit barn where they put like an a-frame uh, cage system and then as the as the birds shit the shit just kind of drops through cascades like plunk plinko like yeah and then it goes into like a huge open room underneath that they call the pit and it just it just fills over the course of the life of the birds and the birds are in there for like a year and a half two years whatever and so until the whole thing is just full of shit and then finally they take the birds out and then they clean out the shit pit and it's like so much shit i mean i saw you know i went and i saw it and i also saw like i talked to undercover investigators whose job it was to to like shovel walkways through the shit pit (laughs) it's just so bad it's really ghastly (laughs) really horrible in fact, um, you were going to read read a passage for us from Barnate, and I think it involves something related to this topic. Is that right? Oh, yeah, I do. Would now be like a good a time for that? Then? Sure, I could do that. Okay, awesome. Um, so in this moment, the, um, one, of the, on one of the investigators, he's, um, he's like walking on one of these farms, and he's, he's walking from, one, from barn three to barn four. Um, and he's... He walks through it and he, one of his shoes presses down onto the dirt and into the shit because there's all of this shit in the fields around the barns too. Chicken shit. In this business, it was once a valuable commodity, sold as fertilizer in a competitive market, an extra dime for the farmhands, phosphorus, nitrogen, potassium, everybody's happy. But the nation's number of hens squared and squared and squared and their shit squared with them. Supply left demand behind decades ago. 150,000 hens makes 2,000 tons of manure a year. On a farm such as this, the farmer has to contend with 16,000 tons of shit before Christmas. 
Meanwhile, chemical fertilizer has become cheap and is a hell of a lot easier than hauling around thousands of tons of shit. Farmers pay for their shit to be carried away and put into landfills. Some of it winds up in our waterways. Some is spread out in the fields around the chicken farms as a sort of super fertilization. That shit sinks into the earth over a period of years and more is spread over it, tamping down the shit beneath it to form a thick crust of chicken shit to stay for all time. Now, the heel of Dill's shoe pressed down onto one piece of shit in particular. That shit, a bit denser than most shit due to the mysteries of biology, pushed past the shit around it and sank. It continued to sink bit by bit through the other shit over days and months and years until it arrived at the pre-farm dirt. From there, its slight haft began a slow, historic, then post-historic descent. As the earth made its rotation, as the planets moved on their sky tracks, as humans raised and lowered their civilizations, the shit traveled a hundredth of a millimeter at a time farther below the surface of the world, sucked by gravity, until it broke free into the cavern of the water table. It drifted down through the soft mud, landed on the bottom, and kept going, grinding through tertiary layers, chalk, carbon. Finally, one day, this extraordinary piece of shit stuck fast in the Paleozoic era, its cellular makeup joining its ancestors and imprinting a fossil into the rock. Far above the shit in the shifting sky, the stars were the only objects humans could see and not destroy. They could destroy not only the sight of them, which they were doing dot by dot, the stars blinking out over the planet, dimmed by human light. But from where the investigators were that night, they could still look up and see some, and Dill did before entering Barn Four. It's fucking beautiful. <laughs> That's so great. It's one of my favorite parts. Uh, I, I really love that um, description, and it makes me think. I wanted to ask you about the kind of the structure of this novel because, it, you know, we described it, we summarized it as it sounds pretty linear, but there are a lot of moving parts in this book. There are a lot of pieces, you know, that are kind of like that little set piece, but then there are some pieces that are flashbacks from other characters. And I wanted to ask you how you went about structuring this and piecing it together. It sounds like you do a lot of revising when you write. Um, did you have a lot of raw material to work with? And then how did you kind of shape it into this story? I mean, I think it was like, um, like a little piece like that would be that I was just doing research and I was just so stunned by how much shit was involved that then I would just sort of stop and just write that little, you know, 300 to 600 word piece. I mean, another thing is that um, I wrote a piece for Harper's on the egg industry. And so I had to do even way more research than I maybe mm. even might have done, you know, for the book. Um, but... I mean, I became obsessed. So I even did way more research than I even would have had to do for the Harper's piece. I mean, I right, just, yeah. so the more that I researched, the more just weird little things I discovered and the more weird people there were to talk to. And, um, you know, the investigators themselves are such interesting people. And um, so, 
and the farmers are really interesting people as well. And so I just, so I would, I, what I would do is I would just write these little pieces and then that's all I did for like a couple of years. Hmm. And I was also working on the book of stories that came out and I was also working on a graphic novel at the same time. Um, so I wasn't really trying to put the novel together. And then hmm. finally I started, I was like, okay, now I got to figure out who these people are, who are the characters, like, how am I going to put all this together? Mm-hmm. And we should say this book was published right at the beginning of the pandemic. And so we yeah, send you our right? condolences for mm-hmm. everyone who published a book uh, during COVID. Oh, yeah. And uh, I think one of your events at Book People is like one of their last in-person events, if not the last it one. Was. Um yeah, it was like the second to last or something. Just, just oh, no. terrible for, you know, writers who are trying to get publicity for their work. And we're like, I'm going to go on tour. And it's like, no, you're not. Um, I had like I had like 29 events planned oh, or something. Like crazy. Whoa, really? Yeah, all over the place. Like all over the crazy. U.S.? Crazy. Yeah. Goodness. What was the pub date of, the, oh, of this book? Was it? I think it was March 3rd. No. Yeah, it was March 3rd. So I did the March 3rd event. Yeah. But then it, there was AWP started the next day and everyone was like, geez, are you going? I don't think so. Are you going? I don't think so. So they started canceling. So I was supposed to have a, you know, a big thing at AWP, didn't do that. And then I was supposed to leave from my book tour on March 13th. And it was That's like... That's the day. That's the day you, they announced COVID-19. I, know. I remember the president's yeah. wife. March 11th, my bag was packed. I'm like, geez, I don't know. And then mm. I'm talking to my editor. He's like, I don't know. I think you could go. I'm like, I don't know. And he was like, well, maybe just don't do the one in New York. You know, I'm sure that like if you just don't do the one in New York on March 13th and probably by March 14th, you know, you can do the one. In... I mean, it was crazy. So then we were like, OK. <laughs> so That's then, so like, funny in hindsight. Huh? I know. It's so funny. So then like every day we canceled like one more event mm. and finally and then we were they were rescheduling them they were like surely by april right. <laughs> it was like yeah. surely by may yeah april 2022 which <laughs> might be okay hopefully i mean i remember in austin it was a bit it was to me a wake-up call when they canceled south by southwest and i was like oh shit this is that's a big deal here this is for keeps um, yeah but i wanted to ask you actually about the pandemic because the um the chicken industry has been in the news because of a lot of COVID restrictions uh, about not just vaccine mandates, but uh, originally COVID spreading through like Tyson chicken plants and uh, you know, the workers trying to get solidarity. Is there, uh, it actually made me think of like you bringing attention to this whole industry in some way has maybe you've been asked about this before in the past is the the jungle the the meatpacking book um you know yeah i love that book and really you know did you have that in mind when you're talking about you know shining a light on um a whole industry i mean you know i i didn't really think about that that much because my book is really funny all the way through and I mean that book I love that book but that book is like a it's like a communist tract you know it's like it's about communism (laughs) there's no no humor no humor it's not funny and and it's really it's it's not it was it was 
you know, it was intended to be like an advertisement for communism. And, um, and I, and I do really, I really love it. It's such a weird book. Like if you've read it recently, it's very strange the way it, the way narratively it goes. Um, and, but I mean, I think I was thinking more about books like Catch-22, um, maybe like Vonnegut or, um, like who else was I thinking about? There's a story by George Saunders about it's it's called like nine two three three zero or something and it's about a a monkey who is um, being experimented on and given massive amounts of of a dangerous medication, um, but it's really funny and it's really really dark and sad. So there's yeah, that rings a bell. Yeah. Um, and and I I read uh, or maybe it was another interview you did that people had asked you about the Edward Abbey uh, because there's direct action in this right like Liberation Front um, monkey wrench gang stuff but that that's not something you had read right is that correct I no I still haven't read it and I'm so glad you reminded me because I have definitely got to read yeah. that book I think there's a lot of similarities of you know kind of a gang of people saying you know voting signing petitions that's all well and good, but we're the part of the organization that is going to go out and actually stop this from happening. And I think that that's kind of the impulse that starts, you know, with characters in your book about we're going to, they start actually by stealing one chicken, right. Or taking, Mm -hmm. um, and it seems really easy, right? Like take, take a chicken. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, I think getting back to your point about, about the pandemic. I mean, so I think that, you know, when I was talking about how chickens started to remind me so much of humans and the human predicament, and um, I, I feel also, you know, being a vegan, you know, part of my deeply held spiritual beliefs is that we're all connected and that we're all equal. And, um, you know, maybe that sounds like a crazy person, but it's, it's just it's just how I feel. It's just what I believe, and and so, um, and so I I do think that we've created this world where we just feel like we just fucking own everything. Like we humans, we own everything. We own each other. We own the air. We own certainly any animal. We own the water, water and we can yeah. kill can everything it. in it that we want. We own the stars. We own, like, we just own everything. And I don't think we own anything. I think we own nothing. And we certainly don't own any other living beings. We do not have the right to just create all of these living beings and then just slaughter them however we want to do it. Like, we just, we have no right to do that. And so I think it's, I think it's like, I really wanted to just kind of, I mean, I just really wanted to have that on the page, just mm-hmm. show that on the page. And and that I do feel yeah. like that's kind of connected to the pandemic because it is, you know, like the pandemic came out of this wild animal that was taken out of out of a forest and brought to a market where it's like enslaved and and put in a cage and then killed and um it's like why do we think that's okay i just i can't understand why people think that that's okay 
Yeah, this seems like something you've been thinking about for a while, because even in Vacation from 2008, you've got a character who's the dolphin untrainer, formerly a dolphin trainer, you know, converts to like a more humane perspective about encaging these these beautiful animals. And so your work seems to me to be indwelt with the sense of animal kinship and animal protectionism, protecting them from the ruin of human exploitation. Um, so you've done that like really in a, in a grand en masse way with Barn 8, but it's early in your work too that you've, you've sort of had the sensibility. Is that something that's always been a part of your kind of outlook on the world or has it become more aggressive towards that through the research that you specifically did for Barn 8 or what's sort of the trajectory of that? So that dolphin um, trainer, untrainer, that was Rico Berry. That was so, that's, that piece of the book was just straight autobiography because mm -hmm. okay. <laughs> I was in I was in Nicaragua and I wound up on this um this island um and was it Corn Island? I was on Corn Island, okay. yeah, cuz I was I went to Bluefield <laughs> in the book. Yeah, okay. And it was horrible. Like it was it had just been through, you know, a horrible there had been a horrible hurricane and I was so I was um really I was kind of I was like sick like I had dysentery and I was I oh just my gosh, wanted really? yeah I was really oh, sick no. and I just wanted I just wanted some vacation at that point I'm like I just want like <laughs> some I want like I want to see like some ocean and some some sea you know like I want to see some some sky and some sun like just please so I went to Corn Island and um, it turned out that there were no bank machines on the island and they didn't take credit cards and I had no money. Um, and I wound up in this little tiny hut and all the way at the end. And then I, so I'm sitting in this little hut and I've, I'm, I'm going to have to fly back soon because I don't have any money. And, um, and this man is walking toward me and he just, he's, it's like, he's like shining. He's full of light. And I, I couldn't understand what was happening. And he approached and it turned out that he was this guy who had come there with his wife, who was there to, um, to untrain these dolphins and bring them back. And it was, okay. and it turned out that it was Rick O'Berry who is, kind of a faint like he's like he's famous for doing this and there's been documentaries about him and he's oh, wow. written a lot of books and he was he was a dolphin trainer for many many years and then he just like changed his mind and is mm -hmm. uh, now would like steal in the middle of the night steal these dolphins and untrain yeah. them and re and release them and so i stayed with them all week and then they invited me oh, on cool. the dolphin <laughs> release on the release no so way. i went on the release with them okay. And it was exactly like I wrote it. I just wrote it down exactly like it happened. I wrote it down like the day after it happened. And then... And there was and then, a huge storm that hit your hit Yeah, your a huge storm. Oh there gosh. was like a hurricane. It was crazy. Whoa. And we barely made it back. And, you know, we like it happened just like that. <laughs> just like it in the book. Um, so, and so, but yeah. And then I chose to put it at the end. Yeah. And... I wanted it to be, I mean, but I was, I, I became a vegan like a year later or something. Like I didn't, okay, yeah, I wasn't a yeah. vegan yet, but yeah. obviously I was thinking about it. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And then you went back to New York and followed a strange man around for months and months at a time. So that was that part That's all made up. <laughs> There's like serious, like it gave me like this really warm recollection of reading a city of glass by Paul Auster in the first installment of the New York trilogy where he just follows that he's, 
detective and he follows that man around who just seems to be making like a random pattern but it turns out he's writing tower of babel with his walk with his walking pattern have you Whoa. read that, Is that no yeah. but i remember when vacation came out people were like have you read you know like i always oh, yeah, miss yeah. the one i missed i missed it I, your book same is with the better. monkey wrench your game book is way better uh, <laughs> um, i, I want to i mean that's the only parallel is there's someone following someone else around new york <laughs> so it's not don't worry you know like infringing any um, intellectual properties or anything so we, we promised you no questions about david foster wallace but uh, i mentioned to you before that i did think of the essay um, consider the lobster several times when I was reading this because it asks a lot of these same questions, but about an animal that is much, I would say not much, but a little harder to love, uh, which seems to have very little in the way of humor or personalities, which is a crustacean. Um, and, you know, he kind of questions a lot of the same things that says well let's really question that maybe it does have personality maybe it does have nerve endings maybe it does have it's more sensitive to temperature changes and he really gets into a lot of research too about the lobster and in the end of it he's not really able to justify his eating of the lobster but he still does eat the lobster um partly for whatever reason but um I want to ask you one, if you you read that essay and, you know, some of those questions about sort of trading one's gustatory pleasure for um, another being. Yeah, Yeah, it's, I love that essay so much. It's such a great essay, Consider the Lobster. Um, Yeah, it was in his second book of um, big essays, right? right? It was, wasn't it called Consider the the Lobster? Yeah, it was the title, yeah. Yeah. And... I mean, I first read that essay probably before I was a vegan. I mean, I know I always read the David Foster Wallace books as as they came out, you know. Um, so I can't remember what year that one came out. Do you remember? 2004. Yeah. So I didn't become a vegan, I think, until 2007 or something, uh, maybe 2008 even. So, um, but I loved that essay. I thought it was, um, and yeah, he, when I went back and looked at it, after I was a vegan, I was so shocked by just how moving it was and how he just, he really went there, you know, he, he really convinced you. I mean, no one could read that essay and not feel, yeah, you know, moved by the fact that like, there's a moment where he, he talks about looking out at this place and suddenly seeing it as this like horror show of people who are are um you know like just eating these these living bodies like just killing them right there like a roman circus like a roman like a roman circus that was what he called a roman circus yeah and um and and then you know and then he just decided oh just you know fuck it like like i'm just gonna like just go ahead and eat it up and and i get that i get that like um like i you know i'm not saying that like i'm perfect i fly i'm not you know i'm not saying that it's just like once once i've made the step of yeah no i like i don't think i can eat that then there's no way i could ever eat it again yeah i think i think an interesting question that came up for me reading that was like what almost like where's the line between not just humans and more human-like animals, but where's the line between animals and 
things that have an interest in not being eaten, right? Right. <laughs> like plants. Well, yeah. Like let's say uh, a sea urchin um, looks like a plant. Technically, it's an animal. Or certain like sea sponges, right? Like very mm-hmm. fine line coral. Um, where is their interest in, you know, staying alive? Uh, like, you know, a mouse has an interest in not being stepped on. It will try to avoid being stepped on. Mm-hmm. Um, but like a rock doesn't. Like rock doesn't. You know, this very philosophical thing that he gets into of like what defines, like where is the line between, you know, an oyster, a barnacle, and like, you know, how can you have sympathy for if an oyster doesn't have an interest in being eaten, it wants to stay alive and reproduce and maybe it has a complex society, but like what a rock doesn't like, you know what I mean? Like, where's the line between, um, this levels of sentience? Yeah. Yeah. Of, I think it's interesting. Yeah. just even questioning that at all. Um, it's partly what you're doing with chickens, right? Cause a lot of people don't even see them as having any kind of feelings or emotions or, um, life. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it it is really hard to make that choice. Like, you know, you have to just draw the line. I mean, I just read recently, I read the overstory. Oh, Richard Powers. Um, I love that book. Yeah. I love that book so much. Yeah. And then suddenly it's like, I'm looking around at the trees. I'm like, man, we have screwed them, but good. I mean, (laughs) as you, as you just, you know, as you kind of think about the kinds of organisms that they were, that they were these whole, you know, also like civilizations, like families that were just like yeah, spread yeah. across the world. Sharing and nutrients just, and cooperating yeah. under, under the earth. And I, I listened to some of his bookworm uh, episode recently. Did you read like, the book? Re-aired. I haven't read it yet, but I mean, it's on my, it's on we my basically list. exterminated yeah, the American chestnut tree. And, you know, there's... Um, this long list of like species that have gone extinct since the year 1900. And really it's only getting worse for like land mammals, um, Mm -hmm. the whaling industry. I mean, it's really bleak. Um, It's so bleak. Dave, you have to read that book. I can't believe you haven't read that book. It won the Pulitzer Prize. (laughs) I'm ashamed. It's so good. (laughs) Happens to me every time we sit down to record. I just feel shame. uh, You know, Powers (laughs) has written a bunch about this subject and, you know, I think, what interests me is this um, kind of predictably irrational behavior on the part of human beings, right? That mm. it's irrational that someone, in some sense, it's not a problem of even education or understanding of facts, that it's a problem of empathy or it's a problem. Yeah, it is. It's a problem of um, being willing to overcome your sort of inherent biases and that is where I think the novelist can do some work that, you know, what you're saying with the, the jungle, just like communist propaganda is not going to do. Um, he's not trying. But that book did a lot. That book did a lot, but it didn't do it didn't do what he wanted it to do. Like he wanted he wanted that book to create empathy for the worker, but it did not. What it did was it it was it 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 resulted in people being horrified by the conditions um, under which their food was being packaged and wanting it to be cleaner. And you brought in these government auditors, which are like in your book, right? And there's mm-hmm. something about the sterility of the farm system that, you know, mm-hmm. 
in a way, that's what people wanted, right? That was the end result, was let's make it more mechanical, more government inspected. Um, but then that is not really the solution, right? Like, I mean, in a way, what you're proposing here is like the solution is to take the roof off of the building and like, <laughs> yeah, Liberate. let them go free, right? Yeah. Um, and I, I don't mean to put words in your mouth, but I, I, I'm just reading from my notes. I'm just trying to summarize what, what I have here. <laughs> but I mean, I, I, I will, you know, we'll address it really quickly because I mean, like we're not a vegan podcast, right? You're probably part of your core audience, which is like you're writing for non-vegans here. You're not preaching to the core. Yeah, corner. totally. And totally. I don't even know if we've ever talked about like eating meat or not on this show, Matt. This might be a first. Uh, probably. We're just delving. And you know, I, <laughs> I you know, most of the time, most of, I've only done one other podcast where I talked a lot about this. In fact, hmm. I mean, one other literary podcast where, you know, and it, it turned out that the guy who was interviewing me was vegan. He just happened to also be like a literary oh, yeah. guy, and yeah. he had a, a literary podcast. And then while we were talking, he started asking me all these questions, and I got a little worried. I was like, "Look, I'm not like a crazy animal rights activist, although I totally am." <laughs> And he he was like, you know, and so then, but this right now, what we're doing is it's interesting to me that we're talking so much about it because usually people don't ask about that. Usually the mm. literary people do not ask about that. They talk about like the characters and oh, stuff yeah. like I that. think it's what the book is about. And so like, why would you, obviously you would want <laughs> to talk about it. It's pretty hard to get away, pretty hard to get around. Yeah, when I think that, you know, if you're writing this book from this perspective, like that is, that's the core of the story is really, why are they doing this? Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think vegans often get, uh, you know, a bad reputation. I've never read too many other like animal liberation books. Although now that I say that, I'm like, shit, maybe I have, um, eating animals by four. Have you read that? I have not. I kind of find him. Annoying, I read that. So, yeah, I know. I know. Uh, I I would say I have read a writer who I really recommended in the past, named Abby Ginny, who writes a lot about the relationship between humans and animals, and you know I think that's really also at the heart of your book is really the relationship between humans and animals, because it's not just about liberating them. It's like okay, you're not just saying like okay, liberate them, go put them in like a nature preserve. Like humans still have to live on this planet too, and you know there there's mutual cooperation and things. Um, and there's a lot of different characters you bring in here. And I still have questions for you about some of those people, the evil humans um, <laughs> who are in here. And one we haven't talked about is Dill. Um, we haven't mm -hmm. talked about Dill or Jonathan, who both I like in their own sort of fucked up way. Um, and Dill, I want to ask you right off the bat, like, is that a reference to To Kill Mockingbird? Dill. Oh, that's so interesting. No. Um, okay, so first of all, one thing I tried really hard to do in the book was to not have any evil humans. Like, even the farmers it's are true. pretty that's sympathetic. Totally fair. Yeah, totally, totally fair. And that's true. All like so, every single person. I mean, then and that when I started writing the book, I thought I was going to have a book full of like evil farmers, and right. like heroic. Bean. 
heroic, um, you know, perfect um, activists. And that's not at all. Once I started researching it yeah. and getting to know these people, that was all turned on its head. I mean, the, you know, I spent a lot of time with the farmers and they were, you know, wonderful people with their own like quirks and just interesting. They were just interesting and fun to hang out with. And um, I went out, you know, had drinks with them and, you know, did shots of whiskey. And I mean, it was really great. You know, I like... Okay, they didn't. They did not know that I was that I was an <laughs> activist. Or that I was. They didn't. They had no idea. Gonna write a big but, take down. Yeah. yeah, they had no idea. But we did. I mean, and then, but even after they did find out, um, they were still. They were just. I just liked them. You know, they, mm. there was, and they had their reasons. I wouldn't say every single one had their reasons, but, um, you know, I mean, for these guys, like it's a family business. They they their great grandparents were doing this and Mm -hmm. um you know so they feel like they are um and and they just don't believe that chickens have like feelings or that they have sentience they just they we just happen to disagree so Mm -hmm. so i wound up i wound up not making the the farmers villains and then As I got to know the undercover investigators, I really, really liked them all. They were really fun, um, but they were crazy. I mean, crazy to a man and woman. Um, and so, just in what they're willing they to do, or like how they got to that point in life. No, or... yeah, like just people with problems, people with big problems. I mean, you yeah. have to have a very um, it's a very difficult life to live and to do it for more than a few months, you've got to be crazy. So, um, or I mean, crazy is a big word. You've got to, you just, you have to be committed in a way that, um, society just kind of looks at you and, and just doesn't understand what went wrong. Mm. Um, and so, so they, and they're complicated people. So they wound up being very flawed in the book. So I wound up yeah. having just like characters that were um, flawed, that were heroic, that were, you know, farmers and not farmers, just all different kinds. And I was really, yeah. I was glad that that happened. Well, and, and I didn't mean to take that out of context. I was quoting from the very last paragraph of the book, which is way in an epilogue, <laughs> way, way, you know, into the future, speculating about way into the future where, you know, chickens will not be alone the evil humans will be gone for good chickens like you said 55 million years ago there were you know this whole reconsideration of even what dinosaurs are um there's a lot of research now that says actually they all had feathers and you know our our belief in that dinosaurs looked like lizards is really based on you know science that's 100 years old and they were pretty much all various types of birds with very ancient um species of animals that's right and they went tweet i mean my dad always says that dinosaurs went tweet tweet that the noise they made was tweet tweet not i think that there's a lot of tell that to my four-year-old she'd love it there's a lot of evidence that that's uh that's the truth uh so i think that that's where i was quoting it is like in a way that is about climate change because like humans, like you said, we're burning up the planet, destroying our own environment. The whole whole ecosystems are collapsing. Um, But in the end, like the, surely some of these birds will survive. They don't need us, right? 
I hope that that's right. That's why I yeah. made those radioactive birds in the in the book. <laughs> they can outlive everyone. Right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, I just have to ask a side question, Dave. Don't you have a new baby? Yeah. Yeah. yeah six six weeks old. Oh, six uh, weeks old. Yeah, six weeks. So that's new since last time we recorded. Matt it was the first recording. That's right. Uh, that I that I've had two children now. And and maybe why this episode's a little bit more delayed than it otherwise would have been. <laughs> so my young David's got a long road ahead of him. Uh, my youngest is oh yeah eleven, and he, I remember when he was born. He was born in two thousand ten, of thinking like okay if he lives to be ninety, he's the only one of us probably has got a shot at seeing the year twenty one hundred, like a whole new like the century turnover again. It's like maybe yeah. my youngest if he lives to be ninety. But now, mm-hmm. with your kid being, he would only have to be seventy-nine. You mm-hmm. see, it that seems pretty seems doable. Likely, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that's pretty exciting. It depends on how environmental disaster stuff shakes out in the next right. eighty years. But like, yeah, it seems maybe possible. You hopefully, twenty-one hundred. Yeah, there was that article um, that came out recently that having children now is like an act of radical hope. It was New York Times or something, mm. and that's sort of what it feels like to have a kid in 2021 mm. during a pandemic is like yeah this has to be nothing more than i be- i believe that that we will get through this somehow that the human human race will get through this somehow i want to go back to something you said at the very beginning when we were talking about you know the most shitty question you can ask a writer like where do you get your ideas um about <laughs> use, use this word in initia did you make that word up? Is this a made-up word, like initial? Is that Latin? Like initial, but without I don't the know L. if I made it up. I like this. There are all <laughs> kinds of weird words that I use that I don't know if I made them up or not. I like this word. And that's one of them. That's good. I like this word. Yeah. So it's kind of like an initial idea, but just boiled down to even further to an initial. <laughs> and to like a, a glimpse of a moment of a an image or something. Um that, I've been using it for a long time. That that's really <laughs> fascinating. Um, I, I want to go ask you another question about chickens, which is any other like cool facts. Like you put a lot of cool facts into the book, but just for people who are yeah. listening, like some of the surprising things you learned about chickens. Oh gosh. Um, well, let's see here. I don't. I don't know. I mean, I mean, I think that the things that really surprised me were um, how what close friends they have with each other. Hmm. And then and also the other thing was like um, how you can be such close friends with a chicken, which I started to notice once I started spending time Hmm. um, at at this sanctuary that I lived near at the time. and how they'll like follow you around and they'll like, you know, perch on your lap and they'll like try to take your, you know, like how like parrots will try to like steal your pens and stuff and your stick their face in the, in your peanut butter or whatever. Like chickens are like that too. I mean, they're just, they're very warm and friendly. And, um, so, um, so that was the thing that surprised me the most about them. But I mean, I was really starting from zero. I mean, I didn't even know. I had kind of forgotten that they needed a rooster to fertilize them. Um, I, I mean, I'm sure I learned that in grade school. But when I started this, I was like really surprised. I was like, why is it with all those eggs sitting around that they don't have any chicks? 
Right. That was seriously a question when I first started. <laughs> well, and what a what a um, problem it is with the chicken sexing, right? And um, yeah, yeah, and, and yeah. It's really sad. They hire mm-hmm. you know people to separate out chicks, and it's actually really oh, yeah. hard um, for for untrained people, I should say, to even identify male from female uh, chickens when they're first hatched. Um, but that, that happens a lot with backyard chickens where take home six and then guess what? You got one of them as a rooster. What are you going to do with that one? Um, because if you have the rooster around, you know, you're not going to have any backyard eggs. Right. Uh, right. I want to ask you one other question about kind of at a craft level, the sound of certain sentences. It seems like to me a lot of this book and a lot of your work in general can be read aloud or is meant to be yeah. read aloud or is written originally almost like a transcript. Um, and I wanted to ask you, you know, how do you, how do you go about that? Do you, um, do you read your work aloud before you, you edit it? Do you rec- record things into a recorder? Like what's some of your methodology there? No, I never do that. I, um, I just have to hear it in my head. And a piece isn't done until I've heard it in my head. So like just last night I was, I was editing, um, just a really short, like a short, short, um, it was just like 600 words or something. And I just kept reading it again and again. And it was just like the scent, the stresses just were not falling in the right place for some of the sentences and some of the words just didn't feel like um fun enough you know they just didn't Mm -hmm. feel fun they just felt like plain old words it's kind of boring (laughs) and yeah like like it would and it would go in and out they would be like sing song sing song sing song and then clonk 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 and then sing song sing song sing song clonk clonk so i have to get go in there and just like i can't I can't stop working on the piece until I get the clunk clunks out. You know, this all happened with Ger- with Gertrude Stein. I was like a Gertrude Stein freak. And um, I mean, actually, really what happened was I was not a Gertrude Stein freak, but um, someone told me that they really loved, and a writer I admired said that she really loved Gertrude Stein. So I took some books out by her and I didn't understand them at all. Like could had no understanding what was happening. And um a neighbor who had been upstairs was like playing his music really loud. So I pounded on the, I, w- I went upstairs and I pounded on the door and I said, you know, shut up. Like I'm trying to read some Gertrude Stein here, you know, I'm trying to be a writer, you know? And he was, he was like, Oh, I have a recording of her. I was like, really? So he's like, come in. So, um, so he played this recording of her and it was so interesting because she read as she read i could suddenly i suddenly understood the work like she mm-hmm. she was she was recording a sound that she heard that i don't hear like it was the sound of her own mind or like the sound of like the rhythm of the world that she sees like she looks out at the world and she sees a rhythm just like i look out at the world and i see a rhythm but like our rhythms don't match so in order for me to hear her rhythm she has to write her words 
And then if I can read them right, then I can hear her rhythm. And then we can be much closer. And it's not about content. It's just about sound, you know? It's not about plot. It's just about, like, sound. It's not about ideas. It's like, how close can I be to you that, like, that's how close I want you to be to me. I want you to hear the rhythm of of what I hear, like the rhythm of, of my experience and my brain. That's so it's amazing because you really jumped over the wall <laughs> of another person because now you probably looked at that guy with the record a little bit different too you could hear his sound sure. maybe he had a little mutual respect after that yeah. really? no not really <laughs> a little bit just a little well, <laughs> yes and depends what record he was I mean, playing you have such a unique voice though even in your stories from your novel to your memoir there's something very recognizable across that and yeah. in fact when i first uh read the beginning of revolution i was like i wasn't sure that this was i was like i just assumed it was a novel it reads like a novel to me um and that i had never read a memoir written in that way i mean i read a lot of other memoirs but a lot of them are very i would say focused on you know i'm gonna tell this great story and yours it just read like you were creating these characters um so I, I find that voice, it really does work. Um, whatever that getting the, the clunk clunk out of your sentences, I could feel that in the memoir as well. Yeah, I mean, it's also like, um, you know, like, I don't know if you if you like the artist Giacometti. Oh, yeah. I mean, everyone likes Giacometti, like right? Stick figures. Yeah, he stuff. does the little stick figure guys. Yeah, yeah the walking man and the sculptures the, yeah and the standing woman yeah. so there's this great book by i mean of course everyone loves him but there's this great book by james lord where he talks about sitting for giacometti for a portrait and um it's called the giacometti portrait and um so he what he told he told giacometti that he was going to um he only had like the weekend because he had to leave for new york on monday so he could do a portrait of him but just for two days so he comes he does the portrait Giacometti's like this is great come back tomorrow you know finishes you know and then on the second day he's like oh actually you have to come back tomorrow because I'm not done and Giacometti's like I don't know it, it looks kind of the same as it did yesterday he's like sorry you have to change your plane ticket so he changes <laughs> his plane ticket and he stays an extra couple days he paints and he paints and he paints and he paints and then he's like I'm sorry I, you know I'm not done you have to you know you have to stay Extend. longer so he keeps coming back and he keeps coming back and he's got like a wife and like a new daughter at home in New York and he's like wants to leave but he's like Giacometti's like making him stay <laughs> and he keeps look at the end of each day Giacometti keeps looking at I mean James Lord keeps looking at it and he's like it kind of looks the same and you're only working on one piece of it just like the same little round part of my head I mean what's happening you know you have to let me out of here and he said he talks <laughs> the book is so interesting because he he talks about feeling like just completely overwhelmed with just terror and you know that he might never get to leave Paris that he might just always have to keep mm. coming back and sitting for him and um then it's his brother yeah and finally his brother Diego comes in and he's like James like what am I James is like what am I gonna do I gotta get out of here and he's like he's always like this you know when we when he builds those standing men 
I have to run in and grab them because he'll like chisel and chisel and chisel and chisel and chisel until it's getting smaller and smaller and smaller until it's just like a little speck and then he taps it and it's gone. So he runs in and grabs it and that the whole time he's just saying like, I'm trying to just recreate what I see in my head. Like I want you to see the thing that I have in my head. And anyway, it's just another way of saying the Gertrude Stein thing is like, you know, the difficulty of trying to get the thing out that's in my head like onto the page Mm -hmm. and that it's not about it's never about like the plot really it's never about whatever it is like the story like when I was writing Mm -hmm. revolution I was thinking about that a lot and I was thinking about how it's not about me going to Central America to join the revolution you know when I was 18 like that is the story but it's also just like it's about like the form. It's about memory and time and like the misrep, like this, the how like time misrepresents itself and um, in our minds. And it's about um, you know the sound of who I was then versus the sound of who I am now, or mm. the sound of who I was when I was writing that book. Right, and that that sounds it sounds like a cliche t- to say this, but that's sort of what makes it like a universal experience for the reader and you can be inside of another person's head um which is i think one of the only things you can do originally in literature um the the, The imaginative um, access to other selves idea Um, but your your story about you know gertrude stein reminds me there's a famous story where picasso did a portrait of gertrude stein and someone told picasso she doesn't really look like that and picasso said don't worry she will oh my god <laughs> i forgot will. that um, there's so many great i mean Ugh. gertrude stein's quotes that were coming up when you were talking about her because I, I love her work and like you said it has to be it's all about this voice it ha- in a way it has to be read aloud to kind of get it at first um she says there's one quote she says i love a view but i love to sit with my back to it and i I just love this idea that there's you know the the work of the genius is really to do nothing or to to sit around you know like what you're describing with giacometti it's like he's fucking genius but in a way he's either doing something extremely repetitive and just you know carving it down i remember there's a story too about giacometti where he's working at some residency and he was very depressed and he was in a bad mood. And by the time he had started these huge boulders and he left the residency with them in a matchbox, like he had carved them down into two little tiny little (laughs) sticks that were just in a matchbox. Um, But that he was like, here's my art. It's it's here. It's this little thing. They're like, can't sell that dude. Um, But I know we wanted to talk about your teaching a little bit and, um, and what you do at the university of Texas at Austin and with Penn city writers, how do you take some of the stuff that you're talking about and, and engage students with, this is, this is how to write compelling writing. Like what, what are your, how do you get in there with students to convey this stuff and to like, what kind of exercises do you do? And like, what is your, what is your pedagogy around, getting students to get to to this kind of place that you're talking about of like real communion with the reader 
I mean, it just kind of depends, like, if I'm teaching, yeah. like, which level I'm teaching. I yeah. mean, it's really different at the prison as it mm-hmm. is at, um, you know, at the university. Um, you know, at the university, I mean, I teach undergrads and graduate students. Mm-hmm. Um, and with the undergrads, I mean, a lot of times, like, if they're just, if, if, if I just really feel like they're not being specific enough, I'll just say, okay, everybody just, just describe the ceiling. And just start writing, <laughs> describe the ceiling. And they're all just sitting there looking up at the ceiling and like trying to like describe the ceiling, you know. And then I'm like, now that is how I want you to write. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, if I see it again, describe the floor <laughs> this time, you know. So so it's just, it's about like getting them to, it's, to yeah. yeah. So, um, but yeah, the prison's really different. The prison is a very different experience of teaching. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a maximum security prison, um, and I was working at Barnate when I started teaching there, and okay, yeah. um, you know, so there's something about, you know, just about like seeing all these people living in cages for their mm-hmm. whole, you know, for so many. I mean, you know, in Texas, I mean, these guys they're they're in prison for decades, mm-hmm. and a lot of them they went yeah. in when they were 18, 19. I mean, I have one, I have one student who's been in prison since he was 14. And, and how old uh, do you know? I think now he's like 30, 31 maybe. And, but he, he doesn't come up for parole for... So half his life. Yeah, yeah for, I think, it, I think, I think he has like a 45, 45 years before he can be up, go up for parole from when he was at 14. Oh my gosh. So that's what, 60 or something? Wow. Um, and so... What made you want to get involved like they're in not that? Gonna, what, what drove you to do that? So my, well, my dad was involved in like prison advocacy. And then when I used to teach at, I was a professor at Wesleyan University in Connecticut, which is actually one reason why I became friends. I already knew um, Jessica Anthony, oh, yeah. who I love and I love her writing so much. Same and, here. Um, we love it. She's fantastic. Yes. Oh, yeah. um, and so anyway, they had a prison program. So I just taught in that. And then when I moved here, you know, they didn't have one. So I just decided to just start one. Um, and I was going to just start one at the local jail. And then I met with this activist who said, um, you know, you should go to one of those places where they don't have classes. And I was like, okay, you pick hmm. one. So he yeah. picked he picked this one. Hmm. And I've been going there all these one years. One of our former guests, too, uh, my friend Chris Pikarski, he taught in prison. Uh, and he now teaches uh, rhetoric at UT. He did a PhD there in on David Foster Wallace and Buddhism in 2011, wow. 2010. Cool. So if you're looking for people with experience teaching prison in prisons <laughs> at UT, I should let him know. He would love it. Um, he sounds like such an interesting guy. He is an interesting guy. He's cool. Uh, yeah. He was on our early episodes of our show. Um, like 14 about or something, Buddhism. I think. But yeah. uh, the, the comparison between, you know, people locked up, all of these animals locked up in cages. I mean, that that definitely came to mind. Um, you know, when I was reading this, I feel like there was a, a comparison there between, um, you know, lack of hope. Human incarceration. Yeah. And, yeah. And, yeah. and in a way, there there's, you know, way fewer people um, trying to bust people out of jail due to, you know, you know, especially in Texas, like there's a big criminal justice, mo- like, lock up more people you know we need more prisons and rather than trying to get rid of prisons 
I mean, how, how do you see those two issues? Maybe I'm conflating two things that don't really belong. No, I mean, you know, they talk, you know, the guys at the prison talk a lot about, you know, feeling, um, you know, feeling like, like caged animals. I mean, they are in cages Mm -hmm. and the prison looks like a giant cage. Um, So, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, I think it's, it's, it's a very painful reality. It's a very, very painful thing to witness. I mean, because the thing is, they're, they are, those guys are totally alive. I mean, they're so smart. They read like crazy. They just mm-hmm. read, they read so much more than any of my students. And they write like mad. And they're like um, interested in everything. And um, they're, yeah, they have, they have, they have futures. They have, they have, their brains are open enough that they could just do so much. It's a waste. Mm-hmm. So what is the nature of the of the program that you do there? Like, what is, you know, are you doing like duration classes? Are you working with the same students for years on end? Like what kind of stuff, what kind of work are they producing? Like, I mean, I have to just kind of keep changing it. I, yeah. I originally, the idea was I was just going to teach this one little workshop, just show up once a month and just, you know, <laughs> come on down, you know, but yeah, it has creative writing workshop. Yeah. But it has yeah. changed. It has grown. It like, it, it changes to suit what's happening. And then like for mm-hmm. a while it was like a two year, then like a three year program, you know, where after that time you leave, but then, you know, then it's like, so there's one college class at the whole place. And then the poor guy, he finishes and then what? He's just back in population and he doesn't get to be in the class anymore. So I can't do that. So, I mean, so then I just let them stay and we just take, oh, yeah. they just hang out and they're brilliant. And then they train other ones and they, they, they run like beginning classes. Like once they've been in the class for a few years, they start sort of getting other students ready to join by like okay, doing like, yeah. you know, doing like beginning classes and stuff. And then we have like a small art program. Oh my God, we're going to do an art show at a gallery at UT and yeah next semester you got to come it's very exciting and um and we are um yeah and then we have this amazing we have a we built our own library inside the prison we have the Penn City Writers Library and then each person each student is matched to people outside the prison who are reading books with them so Very they cool. read books and they write letters back and forth. Can I, can can and can we do that or any? How do we get involved? We with that? need some new people. How, we really how do because do they're up for they're this? reading. You mm. just tell me. Okay. You just write me. <laughs> just write me. You two should do it. It's so much fun. It's like so rewarding. That sounds great. Nobody ever quits. Everyone wants to just keep doing it. Hmm. It's like because you get a letter once a month from someone who's incarcerated, and it's like. You know, I read this book by David Foster Wallace or whatever. And um, I mean, I pick all the books. So I, sl- yeah, I what's hand your, What other curriculum stuff do you have? So then I also, um, then we do have the creative writing class. Um, and, then, um, and then we do literature. Like next week we're reading um, Down the Rabbit Hole by um, Juan Pablo Villalobos, which is an amazing book, hmm. which you should read. Um, last month we did, um, Colson Whitehead's Underground Railroad. Mm-hmm. Um, we did, you know, just every month we do a different book. Are there things cool. the prison won't yeah. let you do? Yes. Yeah. Many, many, many. Hmm. 
Yeah. Um, what are a couple titles that stand out? Oh, of books that we can't do? Yeah. yeah. Um, I thought you were asking me, <laughs> are there things that we can't do? Yeah. Like, are there things that I want to do at the prison that I can't do? Yes. yes. Um, but in terms of like titles, yeah, there's always some title. Like I remember, um, oh, Fun Home by Alison Bechtel. They wouldn't let me bring that one. Mm. Um, Mary Carr, um, Liars Club. They wouldn't let me bring that. Mm. Like, I mean, they're just weird, so there's like a random sensory titles. Co- sensory committee that like vets the materials that you, yeah. That you, wow. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm, I, I definitely, I follow every rule they give me. So yeah. I would never, yeah. I never bring in anything that they tell me not to. Sure. Did you come up with the name Penn City Writers? Because that's really clever. Isn't that cute? Um, is, no, like really that. what happened was <laughs> I said to the class, I was like, look, we're at a point where we're acting like a brotherhood here. So, cause they are, they're like a brotherhood. They like march together through the prison, you know? And, and they really take care of each other and stuff. And so I was like, we need a, we need a, we need a name. Let's come up with a name. Like next class, everyone come up with a name and then we'll have a vote. So the next class, everyone came in with a name except for one guy who forgot. And so we wrote all the names up on the board. Everyone wrote each their name. And then the one guy who forgot owed one of the guys, the guy who had brought in the name Penn City Writers, owed him a favor. So he voted for Penn City Writers and everyone else voted for their own name. (laughs) (laughs) So one by one. one (laughs) That's awesome. That's great. (laughs) Well, Deb, it has been amazing talking to you. We could keep going for hours, I feel like, very easily. at this point, do we do you have any sort of final thoughts? Anything we haven't covered about your work or uh, your teaching that you that you still want to talk about as we start to wind down here? I mean, guess I guess the only thing would be please do contact me because we need people to read books. Like that would be like I would just say that again. Please email me if you want okay, to read books. Perfect. What is your contact um, email? Well, that I our, mean, that our listeners can, can find you at um, about that yeah. would be mm-hmm. pencitywriters at gmail.com. Perfect. Okay, cool. great. We'll put it in the show notes as well. Um, we have okay. an audience that is, I would say, a highly engaged reading audience. We get emails very often from them and Instagram comments about books they're reading and stuff that they found on our show. And if you like this, you guys also need to read this and get this person on. And so I have a feeling you'll probably get a few emails as a result of doing this, at least a few. Um, that sounds very cool. How about um, where can people find you online, Deb? And where can they find more of your work? Um, well, I am on Facebook and Instagram. I'm not very good at either one of them, <laughs> um, but I'm there. I And I, I, I witness. I witness more than I. <laughs> you bear witness. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, cool. And um, yeah, I mean, you know, you mentioned we meant we talked about all my books. I'm working on a bunch of new stories and okay. short shorts, awesome. and you know, yep. I'm, I've got a new. I'm. I want to do like um, for my novel, my next novel. I want to do like maybe like a trilogy of Barnett. Like I want oh, my okay. next one is going to be set a little further in the future but not have chickens in it um be like about a different aspect of um the end of civilization yeah okay um 
so so I'm thinking about I mean I've, I've been working on pages for that so we'll see what happens amazing cool well we look very much forward to your future projects Matt I think I remember you saying once that you should never ask a writer what they're working right. on or like what's That's the right. next thing it's very tempting yeah. and I so I'm glad you brought that I up have, Devin. We I have, have a few <laughs> uh, just rules for people if you're listening when you go to an author's reading don't ever ask about another book only ask about the one that they're signing there. Um, don't ever ask what they're working on next. Um, yeah, that's just, just. Don't ever ask them about David Foster Wallace. Right, that's just the top three right there. Um, be a good audience member. Oh. If you just be like, stay focused on this book you're reading, and that's the only thing that exists in the world. And tomorrow might never come. It's kind of bad luck to talk about stuff in process. So let's just talk about what. <laughs> what we can buy today everyone is listening go out and buy bond eight what we can buy right. we're yes. consumers what can we, what can we purchase um, <laughs> and let's be real like um, people got to get paid so no i really nice. i really it's think that that should be um our national motto what can, what we, can buy? we buy we own everything right, right? you can't own a book uh I'll be happy to donate this book to the Penn City Writers. Um, <laughs> let me know how we can donate some books there as well, uh, if, if yeah. that's a thing. So We will talk. All right. uh, <laughs> awesome. Thanks for joining us. Deb, and, thank you so uh, much. We got a little bit of housekeeping here to wrap up. Uh, speaking of getting paid, we have some new patrons this month, right. Matt. Um, people who generously give us a little bit of money for what we're doing here uh, in support. And uh, one of those people is Richie Spicer who I've had a lot of back and forth with through Instagram, and we have tons of red stuff in common. He's got a separate Instagram called Hot Fudge Monday Reads that's just like all book yeah. stuff. It's yeah. great. Uh, his, so check his, that out. his Instagram is awesome. It is, yeah. He was the first person to buy one of our shirts. That's right. We Maybe. also have these yeah. stickers, say Concavity Show, with our new logo. We have. And all yeah. of our patrons should get the sticker. Um, I have a couple of keychains left some oh, some nice. buttons and uh some other merch for them so our patrons good. will get some merch good we want to thank douglas ray millard as well for joining the team harold niver who's new and is like very engaged like i'm seeing him everywhere on instagram all of a sudden which is awesome uh and as well we want to thank nancy resendez thank you all so much for supporting us uh we so appreciate it uh, we also had some contest winners from the David Jensen art contest uh, after, that we announced last All right. episode. Um, and so we had Jack Waters, who's an awesome listener of our show and also a patron. Michael Thomas Taylor and Michael Kozlowski all won David Jensen portraits sponsored by the Infinite Jest Twitter bot account. Uh, as usual, we want to thank the band Parquet Courts for their songs Tenderness and Instant Disassembly. Matt, where can people find us? Where can Cavity Show on Instagram and Twitter? You can always email us, concavityshow at gmail.com. We love getting emails. Um, and we do ask if you've enjoyed any of our episodes, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Yeah, apparently that's really good and helps us out somehow. Algorithms yeah. and, and stuff. Debel and Unferth, thank you so much again. It's been great having you here for episode 63. And uh, stay tuned for some bonus discussion. Thank you. Catch me now as I sing. 
take a drink I cut all your air when you're not talking it's gone you can cough you can take the doorbell there could be a garbage truck backing up <laughs> behind you but if if when you're talking then something like that happens then I can't then it's harder to edit out you guys are so professional this is <laughs> I've done a lot of these and no one has Let done anything like total this. amateurs it's not true